Sarah Marshall, hello. Alex Steed, hello. Welcome to Why Are Dads, which is a show where uh, we talk about feelings and emotions and often dads. Yeah. (laughs) In the context of movies some people have seen. And we talk about what a dad is or could be and how to build a better dad and... What to do with with the dads that we have. Got to do something with them. Totally. And in doing so, we sneakily make you think about yourself. (laughs) Yeah. And sneakily make each other think about ourselves also, which I think is what makes it fair. We're not just trying to, like, force the listener to have feelings. We're also making each other have feelings. This is the truth. You referred to this in today's episode as, a, I think, a, a virtual or digital sleepover, mm-hmm. which is how I think, you know, we've we've talked about the show in that context before, but that's increasingly how I feel about this show. It's a slumber party. It helps that I always have a blanket over my head. You sure do, as you do right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, let me tell you about the little girl who fell into the paper mill, which is a real scary story I made up in the second grade. Oh, let's get to that in a second. We have on the show today, Clementine Ford, and we are talking about the movie Fargo. And Clementine has been on the show before. Mm-hmm. She's an outspoken feminist in Australia, which is a continent. It is. And an island. Fun fact. And an island. I learned that from a placemat. <laughs> And she's been on the show before. She's an author, a podcaster. She's prolific on uh, the visual social media. And we love her so much. And we're so glad that she came on. We do love her so much. And I feel as if our repeat guests are like establishing beats at this point. And Clementine's beat is homosociality. And I feel as if she came on the first time to talk about Top Gun. And now we're talking about Fargo. That is like homosocial dreams and homosocial nightmares the same way that Steven Spielberg saw Poltergeist and E.T. as suburban nightmare and suburban dreams. Beautifully, beautifully put. And I'm sure we will uh, spend probably some time with both of those movies mm-hmm. at some point in the relative near future. Now, Sarah, you told me just seconds ago about a terrifying story you wrote at, uh, what, second grade is age seven? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, just made it up and told it orally because I didn't write or read at that time in my life. You were more of a Homeric storyteller. Yeah, I, <laughs> I was more of a little kid in Candyman. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was a very imaginative kid. And two of the things I remember doing, one, before I knew how to read, I pretended I could read because I had a book on tape of the day Jimmy's boa bounced back. Mm. And I guess had the whole thing memorized with inflections because like kids have great memories and picture books have like 200 words in them. And so I would go through the book picture by picture and like read it to the other kids at school. And I was like six, which is like not even an interesting age to be learning how to read. But <laughs> people were saying to my mom, like, Sarah can read. And she was like, no, she can't. She And like, I think that at the time, like, I might have known how to, but I just like was not willing to put the effort into doing it sure. until sometime in second grade. It's always been an effortful activity for me. So I conned other kids into thinking I could read when I couldn't. <laughs> and then also, yeah, I guess would tell like, chilling stories that I made up on the spot, which is one of the things that when I, you know, initially learned about the satanic panic and the fact that these alleged professionals who were supposed to know how to work with children were like, these children described, you know, having to kick a pony to death. Like what child could conjure that with their imagination? And it's like 
almost any child. Any child can conjure kicking a pony to death with their imagination. Yeah, just for openers, you know? <laughs> yeah, and so what the story I remember telling is about there's this little girl and somehow she like wandered into the machinery of a paper mill because I lived in like paper saw uh, lumber mill territory and was just sort of fascinated by the, the machinery of it. And I was like, and she fell in and she got shredded and put in the paper. And every once in a while, a kid, just like you or me, is getting a piece of paper to do a craft and finds a little bit of the girl. Okay, there's so many things I like about that. <laughs> because you made it resonant on two levels in one line, right? It's like... Any kid like you or me just really plants seven-year-old me <laughs> in that story with you. And then now every time I touch paper, like people who see girls with ribbons around their neck and think um, scary stories to tell in the dark, the head's going to fall off. Even if you don't believe it, as a kid, you have to interact with paper continually. Yes. And always there's one kid that you are around who always thought that there might be a girl stuck in the paper. This is why I always say that I peaked creatively at the age of seven. Like this is before my spirit had been in any way crushed socially. I just made shit up with incredible confidence. And like, I could not focus group a better scary story with like millions of dollars, you know, and like Hollywood professionals to appeal to a bunch of seven-year-olds like that. Because seven-year-olds know, they just know it. They're very creative people, I think. You know, I've talked a bit about this exercise before about the whole concept of visualizing and talking to your past self and spending time with your five-year-old self and getting to know that person better. Because it's, as you said, it's like the person who you were before everything kind of piled on it and form a relationship. Mm. I feel like your conversations with your seven-year-old self in the present would be a good deal of fun. And I hope that you'll, you'll do that. <laughs> I feel like I've been trying to do that more lately. Yeah. And also it occurs to me saying that, that that is very similar to a key plot element of the movie where we're going to talk about today. And I feel like that is also what I love about the Coen brothers is just, this is a very violent movie, but it's also just like the best of all their movies, a wildly creative movie that feels like it has the creative spirit of people who somehow have just maintained the sort of oddball sensibility of childhood in the best way and brought it to adult crimes and adult themes and who also have continually tricked Hollywood into letting them make good movies, which seems like one of the most difficult things that exists. Yeah, absolutely. Like even their movies that people don't universally love are still fascinating in a way. They're still weird. Like all yes. of their movies are weird. And like that is a testament to something. Yeah, they're fascinating in a way that like Hollywood just does not let happen. And, you know, Coen Brothers movies have a pretty specific feel a lot of the time. Um, yeah. There are some outliers, of course. But then it feels like movies that do that run the risk of also becoming later career Tim Burton movies where like, you know, you get in there and you're like, I know what this is going to be all about. <laughs> yeah. I've been feeling that with my own podcast, not this one, the other one, Oh, uh, the one no one's heard of because <laughs> once you've done a hundred iterations of something, you do run the risk of being like, I know how to do this. Mm. I could do this in my sleep. Like I do know how to do the basic sort of template of the show with a great degree of confidence. So at this point, it falls to me to be like, how do I take on greater challenges and continue to do things that are fun for me and that push me 
Right. Because otherwise my creativity and my sort of joy in this project is going to necrotize. Mm, totally. Do you know how to do that yet? Or is that your, that's in process? I feel like I've been able to do that. And I'm just very mindful of the fact, you know, cause I love sitcoms, you know, I'm a sitcom person. I think this is like similar to me started to drink G fuel lately, which I started to do as a complete joke. And now I'm like, this is, it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> I don't like coffee, honestly. And <laughs> I don't like prestige TV. I mean, I like it sometimes, but like, I just, I do not reserve energy for TV. The energy I have in my life is for my friends and for like cleaning a little bit. And then when I'm watching TV, like I would like to be having jokes said to me. <laughs> <laughs> I do want it to be clear to anyone because we've talked about G Fuel a couple of times. We are not paid by G Fuel no. to keep talking about them. But I just started drinking it because Jenny Nicholson, I think, is sponsored by them. And I really love her content. And I was like, that's funny. And then she said something that might have been a joke about that you can use a code from her to buy G Fuel. And I went ahead to try and do that. And then there was no point at which I could put in a code that I noticed. I'm sure it's real. I just, you know, it's hard. And then I was already there and I was like, I mean, I just want this at this point. And so I bought it and now I'm like, I don't, yeah, I just, this is who I am. It's, I'm, I'm not being paid. I just am a dirt bag, you know? If you know a G Fuel rep. Yeah. <laughs> we will sell G Fuel in your back. Yeah. At least send Sarah some cases because she's thirsty. <laughs> Honestly, if if you have to podcast, if you have to do two shows in a day, like you got to just cut the crap and stop trying to choke down something you've never actually liked the taste of. Um, okay, so so quickly, what is Fargo? Oh my goodness. Fargo is a movie that could be a Western set in 1870 in Arizona and no significant element of the plot would be different at all. And it just takes place in 1980s Minnesota instead. And it's a story of fragile and therefore dangerous masculinity and blood on the snow and men <laughs> running into the snow with no plan. And one woman who has to show up and say, well, all right, I'm going to try and make sense of what's going on and, and uh, stop this killing. I also wish more people advertise their movies by saying, this movie could easily take place in the 1800s is a Western in the snow. Mm -hmm. No information about the plot. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's adequate, you know, and it's a nice way to think about it. And especially like if you, for some reason, decide to listen to the intro to this episode and then I'm like, I will watch that movie and then step away to do that. Keep that comparison in mind when you watch just the opening five, 10 minutes, you know, because... The Coen brothers also made True Grit many years later, like mm. Westerns are kind of, they made Blood Simple, which is also, you know, very tropally Western. Certainly male filmmakers of the late 20th century, almost all of them seem to have been highly influenced by mid-century American Westerns. Like that seems like almost universal. John Carpenter also has talked about how like he saw his movies really as Westerns, like there are tons of overt Western references in Scorsese movies. These are also, I think, just like the movies that were being made just like by the fistful at the time that, you know, directors who are working in the 70s, 80s, 90s were growing up. I think it's really it's rewarding to think of this movie as a Western, too, because Westerns are sort of the great 
celebrators of wounded masculinity as heroic. Mm. And I think this is a movie that unveils dangerous masculinity as wounded. Absolutely. I think a big piece of that with the directors at the time was mechanical. I mean, I've heard countless interviews with those with Scorsese in particular and Carpenter and in others about talking about how I think it was like mostly because you could go to a movie theater and pay like a dollar and mm-hmm. see 12 hours worth of Westerns back to back, which was, which sounds like it's like you and a bunch of like nine year olds, like smoking cigarettes and playing stickball yeah. and then going to go see Westerns all day at the theater. Sounds incredible. So these guys just grew up like pinatas, you know, <laughs> jammed with, with John Ford movies. So I just want to issue one preemptive correction before we go into the episode. Mm. I had told you with great confidence, I should should always know once I say anything with great confidence that I should look into it. I told you with great confidence that Steve Buscemi and uh, Peter Stormare, 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 I don't know, Stormare were in Armageddon the same year that this movie came out. Unfortunately, I was wrong. Armageddon came out in 1998, two years later. Oh, I didn't actually notice you saying that it came out the same year as Fargo, I guess. Uh. But yeah, and I knew that because I was too young to see Armageddon the year that Fargo came out because those were yeah the years that I became old enough to see movies about Bruce Willis blowing up in space oh all right do you have any uh, final words of wisdom before we embark on the episode enjoy the buffet I want you to tell me what these fellas look like well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. In what way? I don't know, just funny looking. More than most people, even. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, is that useful to you? Oh, you betcha, yeah. Yeah. I guess you think you're, uh, you know, like an authority figure? King clip on tie there, big fucking man, huh? You know, these are the limits of your life, man. Ooh, what you got there? Margie, you might need a little warm-up. Thanks a bunch. Watch your step, Margie. You mind if I sit over here? Uh, I was married to Linda Cooksey. No, why don't you sit over there? I prefer that. Huh? Oh, sorry. Oh, uh, no, I didn't... no, just so I can see. You don't have to turn my neck. Oh, you guess that was your accomplice and the wood chipper. And for what? For a little bit of money. Whoa. Whoa, daddy. All right, just a couple more quick, quick things before we start the episode. First, Clementine Ford joins us for this episode. As we said in the intro, we're just huge, huge fans of Clementine. She has been a supporter of the show from the beginning. She's an Australian author and activist and wonderful, wonderful person. She's got several media ventures. Uh, She's got a podcast called Conversations with Men. She's got another podcast called Big Sister Hotline. Her Instagram feed is fantastic. A lot of just general commentary, a lot of looks at what dating and Tinder culture is like, which is really interesting. And then also just does these tremendous deep dives into movies that if you like our show, you absolutely will love the deep dives that Clementine is doing. And we are just so, so, so grateful that she spends time with us. And so I hope that you'll check out her stuff. The second thing, uh, we do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash wire dads. If you were able to support 
for real, thank you so much. We have bonus content and episodes and stuff that you will probably like if you like the show, we assume. And if you're not able, we totally understand that too. Just find us on social media, hang with us. We're glad that you're here. It's just crazy that we get to make this show and we get to hang out with you and we appreciate it. All right, let's talk about Fargo. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. We have a special guest, Sarah. Who is our special guest? Our special guest is Clementine Ford, who we last talked to about Top Gun. The toppest guns of all. Hello, Clementine. Hi. It's so great to be back here with you both. Love your work. Thrilled to be asked to come back. That's always a good endorsement. Thank you for stepping into our little online sleepover. (laughs) When we were originally thinking about doing Fargo, we were like, we should have someone from the Midwest who can speak authoritatively about this. And then I was like, should we have someone who's from the furthest possible distance from the Midwest? Also, I think in media, Australia kind of gets treated like the Midwest does as far as like a quirky place. You just slap on a broad accent and you are done. No more character work needed. Exactly. And you can say devastating things and people are like, that's cute. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we were looking for your national authority, but we also just love you and your work. We're so happy you're here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, it's interesting. I didn't think about it from that perspective, but yeah, I mean, environmentally, obviously you can't get as far from Minnesota as <laughs> Australia. But we went, you know, Australia went through that whole spate of films in the 90s, like Mur- same time Fargo mm. came out, Muriel's Wedding, Strictly Ballroom, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, everything that kind of hyper-exaggerated the aspects mm. of small town living here. So in that in that sense, yes, I can bring a perspective. This movie, in a lot of ways, obviously for entirely different reasons. Like Muriel's Wedding of Coen Brothers movies reminds me more of like Raising Arizona. Totally. There's something about that. It's like small towns, very specific kinds of families, very specific kind of relationships. Hilarious if you look at it from any different perspective. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's a mm-hmm. lot of crossover there. Oh God, we have to do Muriel's Wedding, Sarah. Yeah, and Muriel's Wedding is... One of my favorite movies for just showing how devastating families can be. Like, that is a (laughs) devastating movie. And it's so funny and it's so sweet and it just rips your heart out. I just, I love it so much. Oh my God. Every time, I know we're talking about Fargo, but every time I see Muriel's wedding, I just see some new layer in it. Yeah. Look, Sarah, I'm I'm drinking my coffee today from my Muriel's wedding mug. Oh, Oh, spectacular. I don't if I could handle just looking at that face (laughs) as I drink my beverage. She's the most tragic character ever. You must do Mural's wedding. Oh, we will. Do it with someone from the Midwest. Yeah, oh, that's a great idea. Oh, that's perfect. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. We'll get someone from Minnesota to do Mural's wedding. (laughs) The Wire Dad's (laughs) cultural exchange. Yeah, Fargo I think is also a movie that you know, it's so quotable. It's a modern classic. It is like Muriel's Wedding, like really a delightful comedy that is is so funny that it's easy to maybe forget that it is a very coherent and absolutely brutal indictment of masculinity and the way men treat each other and posture for each other and the devastating consequences of that. I just want to like tear all the meat off of this bone with you today. One of the things I've appreciated about our selection process is you 
of the two of us the most have been trying to make sure that our selections are seasonally appropriate, which I really enjoy. (laughs) And Fargo is seasonally appropriate in in a lot of the United States. Why is Fargo a movie that was on the radar? I know we've been talking about this for as long as we've been doing the show, but why, why, why now? Yeah. Well, I realized when we did Citizen Ruth that I think I chose these two because I have spent a lot of time in the, in winters of the past few years in the Midwest And I really miss Midwestern winters. I miss the snow. I miss having sunlight like bouncing at you from all directions. Hmm. Oregon in the winter, Western Oregon is very drab and dark and rainy. We got like a tablespoon full of snow the other day. And I was like, ah, that's kind (laughs) of worse than not getting any because you're like, there it is. And there it goes. But Fargo is an exquisitely snowy movie. It's very of the Midwest in a similar way to Citizen Ruth, and that it feels like it is a very loving lampoon of people in the sense that the Coen brothers are from the Twin Cities, like Alexander Payne is from Nebraska. It just feels, it has boiled down to a lot of broad stereotypes that I'm sure that a lot of Midwesterners do not like very much. In fact, I know some who don't. But I do feel like especially just in its depiction of like very recognizable forms of American masculinity. This is a seasonally appropriate movie that is just addressing maybe what is an even more present issue than usual, which is that we are in the state we are in partly because a relatively small group of men had big feelings, didn't know what to do with them, and fucked us all. Clementine, I want to ask you a two-part question that could take the rest of the episode to answer. <laughs> One is, what is your relationship with this movie already? Like, do you did you have a relationship with this movie? Did you have to revisit it? And two, based on Sarah's intro about this being a movie that's kind of set up by way of the various dramas and tensions between broken men, one of the things that this reminds me of is uh, on Instagram, you somewhat regularly post men's bios from Tinder, mm. which I feel like a lot of the bios that you post there could be extras in Fargo. <laughs> So yeah, tell us about your history and and where you're coming from in the broken men to commentary background. (laughs) For me, actually, it is one of those movies like Muriel's Wedding or Strictly Ballroom that is deeply rooted in my childhood memories because my family went to the cinema a lot when we were growing up. So I remember seeing Fargo with my parents in, you know, 1996 when it came out, I would have been 15 years old. Mm. And so for us, it was kind of like a trope for us to mimic the accent. You know, my parents would always say, oh, you betcha. (laughs) It's a very doable accent, which must account for like some amount of its cultural legacy. Like most people can kind of do a Marge impression. I feel like that would be a good opportunity for me to try, but I will not. (laughs) I've been familiar with the world of Fargo since the Coen brothers released it. Mm. And weirdly, I mean, I've watched it a number of times over the years. I rewatched it in preparation for this and I, I kind of forgot how, just how violent it was. Mm. Like I remembered a lot of the humor and I remembered on some level in my brain that it was a grisly film but I forgot just how gory and violent it was. Mm. I've never had cause to look at it through a filmic lens before. Mm. So that's my history with the movie. Yeah, so I I actually woke up this morning and a memory popped up in my Facebook of a quote that I shared from Marilyn Fry. And she says, to say that straight men are heterosexual is only to say that they engage in sex, i.e. fucking exclusively with the other sex, i.e. women. 
all or almost all of that which pertains to love, most straight men reserve exclusively for other men, mm. the people whom they admire, respect, adore, revere, honour, whom they imitate, idolise and form profound attachments to, whom they are willing to teach and learn from, whose respect, admiration, recognition, honour, reverence and love they desire, those are overwhelmingly other men. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting in the context of Fargo because so much of that can also exemplify toxic masculinity, which is massively on display in this film. And mm-hmm. women are sort of really peripheral except for Marge. Mm-hmm. And yet she's the only competent person in the whole movie. Sarah, in the context of that quote, which is fantastic and fabulous, tell us about the men in Fargo and, and what the tensions are. So Fargo is much like Citizen Ruth, which we talked about last week, is kind of a wunderkammern of fragile masculinity. And so we open with Cherry Lundegaard, played by William H. Macy, our second William H. Macy role of the new year, which I'm thrilled about, having seen him as Donnie in Magnolia a few weeks ago. He is on his way to Fargo. We're going to have the one scene in this movie that takes place in Fargo, where he is going to contract criminals for hire named Carl Showalter, who's played by Steve Buscemi in the role of a lifetime, <laughs> and Gare Grimsrud, who's played by Peter Stormare, and also the role of a lifetime. Although I really haven't seen him in anything else, but he's fucking great in this. <laughs> no, 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 you have. They were both in Armageddon the same year. Oh my God. Well, I haven't seen that since I was 11 and I made my dad take me to see it. So I should watch that again. And <laughs> so Jerry basically explains to these two unsavory gentlemen, one who because of his wardrobe choices, looks like a giant penis, that he (laughs) needs them to kidnap his wife so that he can get the ransom money that his father-in-law will pay to them to get the wife back. So his father-in-law will pony up and then they'll split the profits. The criminals initially, specifically Carl, is like, what? Like, what, what kind of a plan is this? Kind of questioning it. And then he's like, ah, never mind, let's do it. We then follow Jerry back home where we see him interact with his father-in-law, whose name is Wade Gustafson, who's played by a wonderful actor whose name I forget, but who I believe was Daddy Warbucks on Broadway. Another role of a lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) Harv Prinell, whose name I'm probably saying wrong, plays Wade Gustafson, who is Jerry's terrifying father-in-law, who is this kind of like man with a voice like the spirit of a furnace. He doesn't sound like that at all, but it's hard to do men's voices. We can see that he is being emasculated at home and at work where he works um, in a car dealership that Wade owns. Basically, this is the world into which we are brought and in which we then watch this kidnapping take place. And Jerry's poor wife, Jean, who just very relatably just wants to have a cozy morning watching TV and doing a craft, gets kidnapped because Jerry basically is in debt and can't think of a better way to get money. Jerry's wife exists as a prop so that Jerry ultimately can pay off some debts. Mm-hmm. Which we don't know what they are, but it's probably something embarrassing. I like exactly. I always imagine him getting scammed in some way. Probably from like a bad business investment. Yeah. So he can pay off some debts and so he can also be taken seriously by his father-in-law yes and his father-in-law sort of lives ultimately to make men fear him or to discard men entirely and their relationship is wild well there's that terrible scene between the father 
and Jerry where mm-hmm. William H. Macy plays him so well, that kind of tripping over his feet, constantly emasculated. Mm-hmm. He's a loser, isn't he? He's, he is a loser, classically. <laughs> this is like our month of tragically emasculated men and we just talked about <laughs> Kurtwood Smith and Citizen Ruth as a character who like we understand his character's motivations within this activist group he leads partly because we watch him get chewed out at his menial job mm. by his boss. And this is like, yeah, the same, a similar kind of character study, a small man who the world has made smaller and smaller over time. And he's desperately trying to exert some kind of power. And he says to Wade Gustafson, he wants the money. He wants to make something of himself because he wants to always make sure that Gene and Scotty, Scotty, their son, mm-hmm. that Gene and Scotty will be okay. And the father-in-law looks at him and he's like, my daughter and grandson will always be okay. And so there's mm-hmm. that, it's that tussle between these two men where the father-in-law is like, you're a piece of shit and you're not good enough for my daughter. That's clear. But just so you know, I will always take care of them. I'm the man of this family. I'm the head of this Mm -hmm. household. And there's like a real dick-swinging competition between the two of them that Wade Gustafson will always win. Right. And the way things escalate, you know, Jerry then is like attempting to have some kind of say in his own wife's kidnapping and even then is being muscled out Mm -hmm. and is like not important in, in his very own wife in a kidnapping that he arranged for Pete's sake. I'm older than some of our listeners. And before Tumblr came along and then TikTok eventually and made conversations about identity and orientation, et cetera, a lot more regular and commonplace. And before I regularly had the internet, when I was 12 years old, I wore dresses and stuff. And my father was like, oh no, my son is gay and I have to deal with this, right? And I was like, no. I'm actually, I'm not gay, but it never struck me that there was a one or the other situation. And now that I know there's a choice, I'm most definitely not straight. Mm. And I didn't know why I came to that conclusion until you read that quote, Glenn. I didn't realize that that is the exact reason. Mm. I didn't see myself in the tension that is portrayed in this movie at all. Mm. Like I didn't see myself as a Jerry having to be accepted by his father-in-law. I didn't see myself as his father-in-law. I didn't see my, and I'm not saying this like as if I watched this movie when I was like 13 or whatever and saw this stuff, but like without, there being like a popular conception of what like straight male culture is. This is a lot of just tragic straight men trying to peacock for each other. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't see myself in this at all. Is there another option? And thank God there was another option. And it was strictly ballroom. (laughs) I thought that was really on display when um, the two hitmen, the two bad guys, Carl and what, what's the, like the walking penis, what's his name? Grimsrud. Oh, Carl is the walking penis and Grimsrud is the, yeah, right. you know, the big fella. <laughs> we can call him the big fella and the little guy if you want. <laughs> when they're uh, like somewhere at the first third of the movie and they're going to stage the kidnapping, it's like the night before and Steve Buscemi's character's like, well, I know where we can get a couple of women, we can get laid. Mm. And they're in the motel room just fucking these two women together. And I was watching, I was Mm -hmm. like, this is such a weird thing that dudes do that they like fuck women in front of each other. Also, I think Carl is looking over. (laughs) Yeah. He's looking over at Grimsrud 
And it, it always reminds me, and I feel like the Coen brothers reference in Cold Blood a lot, like the picture of, I think, is Tara Reed's character named Buddy in The Big Lebowski, mm-hmm. the farm that she left behind. That's a picture of the Clutter family farm. So we oh know that God. there's like, <laughs> you, we know they're flinging out some in Cold Blood references. And like <laughs> these two, I see a lot of Dick and Perry and these guys. Oh, yes. Two losers trying to to be real criminals somehow. <laughs> these are not people who like follow a strategy. They're following entirely impulses and responses to each other. At no point are they on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's no objective. There is no plan. It's just like one responding to the other until that inevitably leads to their annihilation. But weirdly as well, like Steve Buscemi saying to the tall guy, the little guy saying to the big guy in the car, you know, like, you never talk. I'm trying to have a conversation with you here. <laughs> exactly. You're on your way to kidnap a woman for, mm-hmm. let's be honest, a really small amount of money. Yeah. Like they were willing to put, and they killed a lot of people for it too, for a tiny percentage, a fractional mm-hmm. percentage of money. I mean, the casting of Steve Buscemi in this role is genius, but he's always made me think of Templeton from Charlotte's Web, like, you know, the rat. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The rat-like aspects of this character are so well done. I say this as someone who is a lifelong lover of of actual rats. Like, yeah, he is always playing rat-like characters in a really wonderful way. Mm. As someone who has always, like, from childhood identified with the character who is just a wanton coward who will do anything to survive. I really appreciate (laughs) (laughs) Clementine, can you talk about the violence in this movie? Because I just said, actually, the other day when we were talking about Saw, how I find the violence in Fargo and then in the series that came after and takes place in the same universe, I find this violence substantially more unsettling than any of the violence in Gore that's portrayed in in Saw. Mm. Can you talk about how the violence struck you this time? Well, I mean, the very first, I I think this is the first death in the movie, the first murder in the movie is of the Mm. police officer, Mm -hmm. that highway patrol guy who stops the kidnappers on the road. And Peter Stramare's character just shoots him point blank in the head right Mm -hmm. over Steve Buscemi's lap and splatters the blood in his face. It's a real money shot there. Yes. Yeah, and and Steve Buscemi's response is to say, oh, daddy, oh, daddy. (laughs) Yeah, about which enough cannot be said. (laughs) You're like thinking about it now, actually, and I wasn't consciously aware of it, but thinking about it, has made me consciously aware of it, that there's no examples in this movie of we never see violence enacted against women, Mm. which I think is a really interesting choice. So the highway patrol guys, brains are blown out, right, like money shot in the centre of of the the screen. And then even the two civilians that drive past while that's happening and, you know, are chased down by the big guy, Mm -hmm. we see him shoot the guy in the back as he's running into the field but he leans down into the car and he sees a quivering, shaking woman in there and we just see him shoot mm-hmm. her off screen. And I think that's really interesting because it would be so easy mm-hmm. for them to stray into, you know, gratuitous, titillating violence against women, particularly given the context of the film. Mm-hmm. But they never do it and we never see the moment when Jean at the end is obviously killed because she's making too much noise. We never see that happen. And I, I appreciate that as a viewer. Yeah, That movie treats Jean's murder the way Goodfellas treats the Lufthansa heist, which is that like 
any other movie that would be the centerpiece of the whole movie. And mm. this movie's like, it's not important. Yeah. Like, you've seen an airline robbery before in this movie, in fact. And you've seen a woman be murdered in your life in another movie. So, like, you know, and it actually reminds me of, because, um, you know, the Coen brothers and the Raimis are sort of intertwined, mm. I think, as filmmakers. And I really fell in love with Bruce Campbell's commentary track for The Evil Dead. You get to hear the story of all these incredibly committed, like, 20-year-olds who just gave everything they had to making this incredibly inventive, incredibly gory movie in the wilderness. And there is one, I think one, just very brief nudity shot in The Evil Dead where like one of the girls who's staying in the cabin takes her top off. We see it through a window and then it's over. And in the commentary, they're just like, yeah, we knew we had to have some nudity, some boobs in there. So like, there it is. (laughs) And that was obligatory back to the experimentations and practical effects and weird demons exploding and forest assault. I hadn't really thought about that until you just brought that up, Clementine, is that looking back kind of on the Coen Brothers movies, all of which center basically around the same thesis, which is this is the chaos that men bring onto themselves and this is how they sloppily deal with it. Mm. I can't remember the quote exactly, but the quote that opens Blood Simple, which we'll, we'll, pro- we'll insert right here. Here's the quote that opens Blood Simple. The world is full of complainers. The fact is, nothing comes with a guarantee. Now, I don't care if you're the Pope of Rome, President of the United States, or Man of the year, something can all go wrong. Go ahead, you know, complain, tell your problems to your neighbor, ask for help, and watch him fly. Now, in Russia, they got it mapped out so that everyone pulls for everyone else. That's the theory, anyway. But what I know about is Texas. Down here, you're on your own. It basically is the the thesis and outline for the rest of their movies, which mm-hmm. is like men expect everything to go well. And then at some point it comes undone and they don't say men specifically, but it's always men who are in these movies and they never look good mm-hmm. with the exception of the dude and uh, Marge. There aren't a lot of heroes in these movies. Mm. And the dude has no plan. That's what makes him a Zen character. He's heroic through non-action. Right. It's funny to me that I think Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels also came out in 1997. And those are both movies where our protagonists are just sort of lovable idiots who through sheer luck and by doing nothing just end up with all of their enemies like equalizing each other and sort of like wander away holding the bag. (laughs) Just in case other people don't know this, because this is the best fact that I learned in all of 2020. While the Raimis were making The Evil Dead 2, which they'd been commissioned to make because there was so much interest in The Evil Dead, and so they essentially just rewrote it and made a new movie. They were living, I think, in Silver Lake or Los Feliz with Bruce Campbell, Holly Hunter, Kathy Bates... (laughs) And Scott Spiegel in a tiny apartment. It ended up taking them a year to make it because that collection of people were partying so hard together. I want to see that sitcom. Yes. Me too. So bad. I want to see that that HBO 10 part series. (laughs) Just Holly Hunter and Kathy Bates just like going out for brunch. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) 
I think the Coen brothers kind of see men as chaos agents. Mm. And we see that very much in this movie that spend their lives either stoking chaos or untangling chaos that they found themselves in. Mm. And I don't think they see a lot of heroes among men. You know, not to labor the point too much, but yeah, the fact that they they've chosen to make most of the visual subjects of violence in this movie and in, you know, all of the across all of their movies, men they're not giving their audience the opportunity to relate to the men but also objectify women in doing so, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's just I imagine a very specific experience to be a man watching a movie like this. And for me as a woman watching, I'm like, isn't it nice that I don't have to see that woman's brains be blown out? Right. You know, isn't, isn't it nice that there's no really disgusting subtext? Like the Steve Buscemi character keeps talking throughout it about how he needs to go and get a woman, you know? So that happens a couple of times in the film. And any other filmmaker, you know, given the kind of obsession that Hollywood has with violence against women and exploring it on screen, there would be a really disgusting, uncomfortable subtext. Well, they have a woman. They have a woman in this house. She's a woman. God, this never occurred to me. Yeah, they're just like, not Jean, obviously. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and also the fact that, like, he goes out, you know, he obtains a woman, he hires an escort. I love that, like, they use this whole, maybe like a five-minute interval, which, you know, I've been watching this movie for so long that it really, I've long since stopped thinking about what a normal (laughs) filmmaker would do. But, like, this is a key moment to, like, get some nice sexual violence against women in. She's there, they're having sex, like, as audiences were primed to know that, like, exciting violence against women is sex adjacent. And instead it becomes a scene where, once again, he's humiliated by a larger man and she runs away scot-free. Or, you know, kind of scot-free. I hope she got paid already. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I don't want to take credit away from this because I think that this is so important. I wonder how much of this has to do with the fact that Frances McDormand has been in their lives as filmmakers since before their first movie. Mm. I mean, she was obviously in Blood Simple. I don't know which Cohen she's married to because I I just see them as one person. One person. She's married to both. They're like the Hedwig and the Angry Inch people. They share a body and their faces face outwards. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder how much of her presence and their filmmaking, you know, consciously or unconsciously, you know, in the same way that um, Tabitha King spared Stephen King from all of his totally worst impulses. And he was only half his worst impulses as a result. I wonder how influential she has been as a result. Hmm. Yeah. I, I thought that too. And that's possible, but it's also possible that she, not that I want to give too much credit to men, you know, that's not my bag, but (laughs) (laughs) I want to imagine a world in which someone as glorious and luminescent as Frances McDormand doesn't have to do a lot of that work in her private life. That she's like, you know what? These guys have already sorted their shit out. That's why I hang out with them. Yeah. The way that you just said it is so well put. It's just that, you know, think about that house that we just described. Like they are men who are living within population of women as artists in a communal way. Mm. And there's something there that's cool. I like these guys a lot, even though I can't tell you which of them is married to. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? 
it's not our business, really. It's it's our job <laughs> to consume the art, not remember who married who when. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that point is important, Clementine. I prefer to believe that they are people who do the right thing, and that's why Frances McDormand's around. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I'll spend time with you. I don't know which you are either. Yeah. <laughs> I think that this movie does understand, you know, why Marge is so important and where her strength lies in a way that suggests that like however they got there there is some real understanding of what strength is because I think you know we certainly see a ton of this in the 90s and still this concept of like nobody knows what the strong woman is like everyone thinks they know especially people working in tv and working in movies but like they don't know I remember really thinking that a prime example was that weird <laughs> Terminator sequel whose name I can't even remember because it was so bad, like Terminator oh, Genesis, Genesis or yes. whatever. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, what a waste of that Game of Thrones lady that I actually like. <laughs> but where she plays Sarah Connor, but they're doing like a cool Sarah Connor. So she's mean to everybody and she's like really superior and and unkind and like, you know, and then other like strong women characters in that mold. She's like traumatized and abrasive and not a team player and she's horrible like how a man is horrible and it's like no no like one of the things that I love that I I didn't even notice until I was watching to prep for doing this episode and I had the subtitles on is when we watch Marge strolling into the police station she stops and talks to a receptionist briefly she asks for for more skin so soft, hmm. which I looked up and realized that that's an Avon order. She's like buying Avon products from one of the people who was working under her. My mom used to sell that, by the way. Yeah. And I bet Marge would have bought it from your mom. That to me, like, is her character. Into this world of incompetent men comes a woman who has successfully absorbed masculinity and is now going right. to, to shoot people. Like, I love that Marge... Mm. She shoots someone at the end of this quite reluctantly and with really remarkable accuracy. She does not want to escalate things. Mm. And that's her strength in a world of like constant escalation. The point that I'm hearing that what makes Marge remarkable is it's not that she's kind of internalized the abrasive structure of domination. And that's what makes her interesting or a strong woman like Marge is just Marge and she thrives in this world being herself and being good. And it's not that she's like being a male version of a woman. She's just being Marge. Mm. Yeah. Well, and also there's the very obvious fact that she's seven months pregnant. Oh yeah. Which we haven't mentioned, but yeah, she's very pregnant. <laughs> yeah. All of these men around her are just destroying life, incompetently destroying it. Yeah. I completely agree, Sarah, that the representation of her as a, an actual strong female character as opposed mm. to a trademarked strong female character is in that she is so decidedly herself while still being competent and useful and smart and clever and and having this very visual point to look at of of her femininity if you want to call it that mm -hmm. but there's also that seemingly incongruous but important scene where she meets her old classmate yes in the restaurant it, which is so so weirdly out of context in the film except for it serves to kind of like show this other side of strength to Marge mm. and also provide the point at which she realizes oh like dudes lie mm. so Jerry might be lying about 
this other stuff that he's told me. Mm-hmm. And it's the only time in the film where you see her, I mean, apart from when she's wearing her pajamas, it's the only time in the film where you see her wearing anything yes. other than her police uniform. Oh, that's true. And she presents in this very kind of like, you know, she looks like a mom in the late 80s who would mm-hmm. live in the Midwest and her mm-hmm. hair is done nicely and she's wearing this high-necked, long, flowy dress mm-hmm. and and she looks very feminine, but there's that point where he like comes, the this classmate comes and sits next to her and kind of crowds her in that way that Sarah, you and I would definitely know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And he's like, do you mind if I sit here? And she just looks steely faced and she's like, no, I think you should go and sit on the other side there. Oh, I love that. I would just prefer that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a really clever and quick and easy way for them to show this is what Marge Gunderson is about. Yeah. She is strength personified, but she's a strong woman. She's not a man writing. I mean, I remember when I um I did this deep dive into Working Girl a few mm. months ago and the writer of Working Girl, I mean, how do men not reflect on what they say? I don't know. <laughs> but he said something along the lines of like, you know, when I wrote Tess McGill, I don't have to write what I think a woman is. I, I can just write her like a man and make her a woman as if somehow this was humanizing her like which is what they also did with Ripley and Alien and I remember it hearing that as like they wrote all the characters without gender and then they're like wait what if Ripley was a woman and it's like couldn't you have just written her knowing she was a woman (laughs) but like it, it was beyond them at the time the other piece of that line Clementine that stands out to me and has hit me like the past four times that I've watched Fargo is when she says to Mike Yamagita that she would prefer that he sit across from him. And then she immediately says, and that way I can see you better. Yeah. It can be read one of two ways. One, it's kind of like Midwestern nice, but the other is like, she realizes that this guy's off. Mm -hmm. If an off guy's pride is hurt, you kind of have to balance it out by being like, this is so I can see you. Cause mm. like, if I hurt your pride in some way, you're going to get fucking bananas in a way that could hurt me. I mean, Midwestern nice is also based on a code of etiquette that functions because people understand what these little expressions of a boundary crossing look like. Mm. It works because everyone's on the same page. And I think that that might be where, you know, what you were saying before, Alex, about, the influence of Frances McDormand on the Coen brothers, that might be something where she would, she would have been able to say she would reject him, but she would be careful about how she did it Mm. because that's what women have to do. Mm -hmm. I also think that just her sitting in front of him and yeah, like being able to see him better and then witnessing him breaking down and Uh, crying. Like I've always felt like that Mm. is her sort of, witnessing the the heart of all of this this is like sort of central to where it all where all these pieces are coming from is like a man lying to everyone and crying mm. when when he gets anywhere near the truth and then also i love that marge is constantly eating in this movie because we never get to see strong women eating unless it's in a like you're so thin and fit and yet you're eating way which is unfun <laughs> um with this it's like She's doing a caloric job and she's pregnant and you can go to a lunch buffet pretty easily in this part of the world, which is not to be underestimated. There is specifically a scene where she has the pieces she needs to put together and then we just watch her ordering a burger and then sitting in her car eating the burger Mm -hmm. because she needs that burger so that her brain can use that burger to figure things out. (laughs) 
I just want to tell you this quote quickly. It's that so the screenwriter of Working Girl was Kevin Wade, and he said that he wrote Tess the way that he would write a guy. And he said, I thought to myself, maybe the secret to this is don't make her a woman, just make her a character. <laughs> I love that what he's saying is like, I wanted to write a guy who like goes in and brazenly seduces an older man in order to do business with him. And it's like, yeah, isn't that what Wall Street was also about? That like business. Big, busy business is just an excuse for men to take a steam together and talk about the art of war. <laughs> Should we talk about where things go wrong? Okay, so the kidnappers take Jean and it all starts to go downhill there. Largely, mm-hmm. I think, because Jerry has not anticipated the fact that his father-in-law will not let him take point on the kidnapping deal. Yeah, he's like, once we do this kidnapping, things are really going to calm down with old Wade. <laughs> We know from the earlier scene between the terribly emasculating scene between Jerry and his father-in-law and his father-in-law's business associate. So Stan Grossman also gets to have an opinion that trumps Jerry's on how the kidnapping should be handled, which I feel like is, is, you know, a deliberate point to really, really emphasize exactly how little respect Jerry has in this family dynamic. Yeah. Stan Grossman, whose job no one ever even says what it is, is still more important than Jerry. (laughs) And also one of the problems as well is that Jerry's gotten greedy. Mm. We know that he wants $700,000 to buy his parking lots and make a name for himself. But he asks, he says that the ransom is a million. So he's, he's gotten greedy. He hasn't anticipated that his father-in-law will be like, you're a piece of shit and you're a joke. You're going to mishandle this. But also that his father-in-law is a businessman. So he's like, well, we'll offer them half a million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like the gif of the toddler that the toddler girl and the ball's been thrown to her and she reaches out to grab it, but the ball just falls right <laughs> through the center of her arms. That's what's <laughs> happening to Jerry. He's like, I want the ball, but I keep dropping it. You're dealing with a cast of characters that are completely incompetent. These kidnappers, I'm not convinced they've ever kidnapped anyone in their life. I don't even know how they've met. It's unclear what their background is. Like, they definitely don't know how to dress for the climate, which just makes everything they do look inept. (laughs) Yeah, there's a huge emphasis on the winter boots. You know, we keep seeing Jerry put his winter Mm -hmm. boots on. But Carl Showalter, he's just wearing some, some loafers. I think keeps slipping and sliding in the snow. It is painful to me to watch his clothes. Everything gets out of control. Jerry loses control of the drop-off of the ransom money. Wade ends up taking this big bag of cash to the parking lot roof, again tries to negotiate with this kidnapper because Wade's got, you know, in the world of business, he's he's got the biggest dick out. Hmm. But he doesn't have a gun that he draws quickly. So he gets shot and killed by uh, Carl Showalter, manages to get like a, a shot in there at the end and skims his face. The, the money then is gone and then it's all out of Jerry's control. Everything is fucked up beyond all repair and it kind of snowballs from there and then everyone dies except for Jerry who is caught climbing out of a bathroom window. <laughs> <laughs> Almost everyone dies. Marge solves the case. She turns up, she drives past, um, you know, Moose Lake. I think it's Moose Lake. Think she so. drives past, finds the old Sierra, walks in and sees the big guy feeding Carl Showalter through the mincer, spraying mm-hmm. blood all over the snow. And then we get the second shot of a guy in the movie. He did the initial killing of the passerby in the car, but we get the second shot of a guy just running into the snow. And I yeah. feel like that is a perfect metaphor for this incompetent, like, haplessness of men that, like, they fuck everything up 
And then they're like, I'm just going to run into this completely blanket of snow. Everything that I've done, every which way that I fucked up in my life is on clear display against this blanket of brilliant white. Yeah. Snow is the answer to all my problems. (laughs) Where will I bury all my money? In the snow shallowly the last scene of fargo season one also ends with an incompetent man running blindly into the snow so (laughs) i'm sure if we asked anyone in the trump administration what their long-term plan is it would boil down to to run into the snow (laughs) (laughs) it reminds of i just looked up the last the very last lines from burn after reading which i i rewatched recently Mm. and and i feel like before anyone decides that they want to make a movie about the trump administration they should just watch burn after reading and like that should be it but (laughs) jesus fucking christ yeah what do we learn palmer i don't know sir i don't fucking know either i guess we learned not to do it again yes sir i'm fucked if i know what we did yes sir it's uh it's hard to say jesus fucking christ I feel like that's like every man in this movie where it's especially like the bad guys, which is like, what just happened? I think that might be all Coen Brothers movies or like at least the good ones. (laughs) I think it's probably all of them. And that's what makes them great or at least their own thing, no matter what you think of, of the execution, which is that it is about a bunch of bumbling people who have no plan and who's filmmakers know that they have no plan because there's a lot of people in movies who also clearly have no plan but the people making the movies don't know that (laughs) do you know what i thought about at the end of this film was scotty Mm. so jerry's son when we last see scotty jerry has realized that he's fucked the whole thing up he's not going to get his money he's probably going to get caught out and we've got scotty's voice upstairs just in his bedroom you know normal teenage boy who thinks that his parents love him and doesn't realize that his father's a screw up Mm. and then by the end of the film his mother's dead his father's clearly going to go to jail and he has to live with the legacy of knowing that his father orchestrated his mother's kidnapping and is responsible for her death Mm -hmm. and what this will then like what path this will set scotty on in terms of him learning how to be a man and the masculinity that he will end up expressing. And I contrast that with the only positive example of masculinity I think that exists in this film, which is Norm Gunderson, Marge's husband. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we got to talk about Norm. One of the things that I've thought a lot about since becoming a mother as well is that if, if you're partnered with a man and you have a child with him, one of the best things that a man can do as a father and as a partner is to show respect and love, obviously, to their child's mother, which Norm does. Like there, you get no sense throughout this. The fact that he wakes up at 3 a.m. in the first time that we meet Marge, she's waking up to go, she's been called out to this scene, the homicide, and he wakes up and he's like, well, you need to eat. I'm going to get up and make you eggs. I'm going to make you breakfast. Mm -hmm. And then the final scene between them is her comforting him in this really positive way about the fact that his painted duck didn't make it onto the more expensive stamp. He got the three cent stamp, but it's okay, Norm, because, you know, everyone always needs the three cent stamps for something or other. (laughs) And I feel like this is a man who, Mm -hmm. when that baby comes, he is going to be the best dad that he can be because he's going to take care of the mother. And that is in stark contrast with Jerry, whose masculinity has always been Mm. like linked away from 
gene and who has who's never been able to express that form of masculinity in terms of how he's a husband and a father. And I just thought that that was interesting. Yeah. I think Norm is so important as a character because he, just how you read him really says a lot about what approach you're taking. And, you know, I know he's given to us in a way that allows you to not necessarily see him as the heroic character that he is. Yeah, he is the picture, I think, of masculine security. And I also love how he is linked in the movie with the act of feeding Marge. Like they do a lot of eating together. And even when they're in bed, they have potato (laughs) chips. I did an experiment on Twitter recently where I was like, I'm trying to think of movies where I was like, here's the criteria. A woman is a main character in the movie. She has a job that the movie deems to be important and worthwhile. So like game change doesn't count because it's about Sarah Palin. So her husband is supportive, but the movie is not. She has a male significant other, not a love interest, but a relationship she's in. And he at no point pitches a hissy specifically about her job. Mm. We talked about this for several days and no one could think of more than about four movies. And Fargo was one of the first and only that anyone could come up with. And Mm. people, a not inconsiderable number of people said, kill Bill, which... To be fair, I didn't specifically say that there's a no attempted murder clause, but I just thought that could be implied. I haven't seen Kill Bill, I have to say, so uh, I can't speak to that. But yes, that strikes me too, you know, that, and it's so important that she's seven months pregnant. Yeah. You're right. Like he doesn't have a hissy fit about, well, you shouldn't be going. It's not, it's not even about, he doesn't even have something where it's not about her safety, but about her her energy mm-hmm. he doesn't even say look you you really shouldn't be waking up this early he's just like that's your job and you love it mm-hmm. and you're really good at it and i'm gonna get up and make you eggs you gotta eat a breakfast <laughs> and i also love it's like a bald painter of, of ducks exactly the only confident man in this movie and not just confident in that he's non-violent or non-threatening but like is is actually actually seems to be contributing to something in this relationship mm-hmm. is a bald painter of ducks i think that that is that is beautiful and norm paints nice ducks i love those ducks and i think this movie it certainly leaves me coming away with this sense of like show me the painters of ducks, you know, because maybe you want to do something big and grand and impressing your father-in-law with your wife and with your life. That was a Freudian (laughs) slip. Um, (laughs) Maybe the thing you want to do isn't something that, that random people will be impressed by, but that you and the people who love you understand the value of and like just paint your ducks. There's a really nice dynamic in that last scene between Marge and Norm where the other flip side of a man throwing a hissy fit about his wife going out to do a dangerous job is the representation of fragile masculinity being, you know, emasculated by their wife's achievements or Mm. their significant female other's achievements. And I feel like that scene really beautifully demonstrated the difference between a man like Norm saying, well, I'm a little bit disappointed because this was really important to me and him listening to his wife say, you know what, I'm really proud of you. And I think that you should be proud because everyone needs the three cent stamps and him allowing Mm -hmm. himself to be comforted by that. And the scene never veering into that territory where you feel like he's being a bit pissy that she's gotten this, she solved her case. Well, and I didn't even get my ducks on the expensive stamp. Like it's the Mm -hmm. dynamic is different. And obviously you know, those choices are intentional. And I think that I appreciate that stuff about 
Coen brothers in the way that they explore masculinity, that they are saying it's not just that this kind of masculinity is fucked up and really harmful to everyone, most of all ourselves, but softness in masculinity doesn't have to be a weakness. You know, Mm. you can have these functional, healthy relationships with women and you can be vulnerable before them and not feel ashamed of that. And the other cops will respect you because in a just world, you're supporting, you know, the woman who they recognize as, as the best cop of them all. And also she'll give you worms, yeah. you know, <laughs> you, you bring her food and, and then she gives you worms. <laughs> That's a glorious point, Clementine, how it's like, it's not just a matter of not being a brutal asshole. There's another side to it too. There's a way, yeah. there are ways mm-hmm. you can be. There's a level even above not murderer. <laughs> <laughs> the Coen Brothers painted gradient. Got some idealists over here. <laughs> we know that Wade and Jerry are are the dads in this movie. Who is the daddy? Norm is also a dad to be. Mm-hmm. It's the clear choice to say Marge because she's, you know, the competent figure who comes in and makes sense of things and doesn't, you know, get blinded to everything that's going on by her own frantic ego. But I'm going to say Stan Grossman because he's just a nice, calming presence. Like (laughs) you want to be in the middle of a power play over your wife who you helped to kidnap. He's going to pull rank and he's going to uphold the gross system he's in. But he's he's going to look a little uncomfortable about it. (laughs) He's a pro. Stan Grossman is a real pro. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Like, obviously, the obvious choice is Marge. Yeah, but. I want to refer very quickly back to the episode that you guys did about Terminator 2 because, Mm. Alex, you and I spoke a little bit about this. Could we say for this one episode, Marge is the mommy? Mm. Yes. She's in there sorting shit out. She's doing it calmly. She's dealing with hapless incompetence all around her. She's not angry. She's just disappointed. Yep, she's probably got a super weak bladder, but she's trucking on through. Driving such long distances. I feel like there's strength in that. You know, Sarah Connor, it was interesting to me to listen to your conversation. I remember at one point you guys said that Sarah Connor's kind of a bitch to John Connor when they pick her up. Mm. And I said to you, Alex, like, I totally get that. Of course, your child puts themselves in harm's way and you're going to yell and scream at them. Don't do that. Don't put yourself in harm's way. Let me die. Mm -hmm. You're too important for this. So I feel like let's go with Stan Grossman's The Daddy but Marge is definitely the mommy. <laughs> yeah, I have nothing to add. I think those are two incredible assessments and I am fully on board with those. Let's frame the final thoughts as this. If you found someone at a party and they hadn't seen Fargo yet, you're in a party at the United States in 2022 or an Australian party today. What's your <laughs> selling point for why someone should watch Fargo? So if they haven't seen Fargo, can I assume that they probably are indifferent to the Brothers Cohen? as well. I'm imagining so. (laughs) Well, I would say that like, if you are the kind of person who, because you live in a culture that they're a part of, has like heard a lot about the Coen brothers, but maybe hasn't watched their movies or is like, you know, the way that I would be if I hadn't been watching these movies forever. People are always going on about these guys as if their movies are the answer to something, but like, that's probably not true, right? Like people talk about all kinds of things as if they're great when they're not. That's my my general feeling about people recommending media is one of unearned mistrust. <laughs> if you feel that way or, or perhaps more mildly so, I think Fargo is a really nice way to just dive in 
And if you like it, then you will probably like other Coen Brothers movies. And if you don't like it, then you probably won't. Mm. And that answers that for you. On, on the grounds of, you know, pure efficiency, it's a nice proposition. And also I would, my pitch would be that it's, it is one of the great, in my opinion, call is coming from inside the house movies or pieces of media alongside Rosemary's Baby and the Stepford Wives by Ira Levin about a man writing within the world of patriarchal masculinity being like, this shit is so fucked and don't listen to any of us who say otherwise because they are lying. Beautiful. I just use that opportunity as well, Sarah, to say I loved your episode of You're Wrong About the Stepford Wives. It was so good. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm really proud of that one. I would assume that if I was at a party with people who hadn't seen Fargo, that they would be extremely young. So <laughs> I would be standing in the corner feeling very uncomfortable. But if the topic of Fargo came up, I would say you must watch this movie. Not only is it a classic of the genre, it is an example of everything done right in cinema about everything done wrong in life. (laughs) (laughs) That is gorgeous. (laughs) I love that a lot. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of Liar Dads. We want to thank Clementine Ford again. Thank you so, so much for coming onto the show and talking about Fargo with us. Uh, again, check out Clementine's podcast, Big Sister Hotline, and Conversations with Men. Everything Clementine does is great. We're stoked about her work, and we can't believe that she comes and hangs out with us. It is, it's just the loveliest. Oh, and check out her deep dives on Instagram. Like I said, uh, if you like the show, you will like those. Thank you so much to Carolyn Hendrick, our producer and our music director and just person who makes music for the show. Often, Carolyn is covering songs that are relevant to the episodes and this week she composed some originals that I think were inspired by Fargo. If you like Carolyn's music, and we hope that you do, we love Carolyn's music, you can find her online at carolynkendrick.com. You can find her on Instagram, Twitter, etc. Those various places. She has an EP called Tear Things Apart. We're considering doing a show at some point, like a live stream show with Carolyn doing music from Wire Dads and uh, and other music. So if that's something you're interested in, please let us know. It seemed like people might be interested when I said something about it on Twitter. For upcoming episodes, you should know that we are going to do 10 Things I Hate About You next week with our friend Sam Pretty Carr. We are going to cover Batman The Dark Knight the week after with Aubrey Gordon. Aubrey Gordon of Indian Space. It's going to be a You're Wrong About Extended Family party. And I'm stoked that this is happening. Lord of the Rings. It's really the last two movies, but we're going to cover Lord of the Rings with Talia Levin. That's coming up and we're excited for that. And then Clueless with Christopher Thomas. Christopher is just the absolute best. I can't wait to talk about Clueless. You can find us again on Patreon at wiredads.com slash Patreon. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. Wire Dads, Wire Dads. You can find me on TikTok. I'm an old man on TikTok. Uh, that's it. That's it for Wire Dads for this week. We are so glad that you're here and you're hanging out with us, and we look forward to coming together again next week. <laughs>